J.I. Packer, a somewhat famous theologian who passed away not long ago, he was deep into his 90s, he wrote a classic book called Knowing God. And in this classic volume called Knowing God, he said this, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's something of a shocking statement. His argument is that your understanding of Christianity is how well you understand what the Bible teaches about adoption and the reality of knowing God as a father. And so I want us to understand uh, really three characteristics of of a child of God, of an adopted child of God this morning. And this is in the context of Romans chapter 8. And just to frame a little bit of the context of Romans, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches at Rome. And these churches were filled with both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the Apostle Paul writes, aiming to unite both Jewish and Gentile, Gentile being non-Jewish, Christians under the banner of the gospel. And Romans 8 is something of a kind of the pinnacle of the glories that God has given to his people in the gospel, the benefits that he's given, the security that he's given to them in this wonderful message that Jesus has died for their sins. And here in Romans chapter Eight, he's, he, this section, he's setting a contrast between those whose lives are, as he says, in the flesh, which means they've not yet received the Spirit of God. They've not yet been born again versus those who are in the Spirit. And those who are in the Spirit, these are the ones who indeed are those who have been adopted into God's family. And so... My aim this morning is that we're going to look at three characteristics of those who are adopted children of God. First of all, they are children who concede to the Spirit. Children who concede. Look at verse 14. It says, all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. All who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Now, sometimes that phrase, being led by the Spirit, is, is commonly taken in quite a mystical kind of way. You know, the, the Spirit led me to go over here, the Spirit led me to go over there. Um, but can I suggest to you that this leading of the Spirit is the way in which the Spirit of God leads his people through the, world, through the Word of God to moral transformation, to be more like Jesus. And uh, I'm asserting that, but let me ask, how do we know that? Well, first of all, the very context. Notice what the Spirit is doing in verse 13 of chapter 8. It says right before the, the passage we're looking at, it says, for if we are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit, he is the one through whom we put to death sin in the Christian life. And so the, the context here suggests that the Spirit of God, he leads in moral transformation. Also, if you look even before that in verses 5 through 8, there's a contrast, as I mentioned, between those who are in the Spirit and those who are in the flesh. In verse 5, it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
So then obviously, what are the things that are according to the Spirit? Verse 6, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit dwells in you. So the mindset on the flesh, the person, the person who has not yet been born again, the person who does not have the Spirit of God in their heart and life, they're the mind who is set on the flesh, and they're hostile to God. They don't subject themselves to God and to His law. There's, there's death, but then those who are in the Spirit, there's life, there's peace, there's reconciliation with God. And also, there's a subjecting of oneself to God and His law. So, the whole context of this demonstrates that being led by the Spirit must be mean something of moral transformation, subjecting oneself to God's will and God's way as He's revealed Himself in the Word of God, to be becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what the context would say. But also, notice in the passage, in verse 14, being led by the Spirit is not something that is given to just a few elite Christians. You know, sometimes the way people talk about the Spirit and His leading their life in a mystical way, it almost seems like they got this special antenna with the Holy Spirit and this direct line of communication. And, and you think, wow, man, I wish I had that, you know. This is like a super Christian. But notice in verse 14, it says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, every child of God is led by the Spirit of God. In other words, if you're not led by the Spirit of God, you ain't a Christian. Okay, so it's not something that is given to the special elite group of Christians who have a special antenna connection with the Spirit of God. No, this is the, the regular, normative work of the Spirit of God in a Christian's life leading them. And yet there's more. When we read the rest of the Scripture and the way in which God leads his people through the Spirit, it is often, again, the idea of morally leading them, leading them in their character growth and change. Listen to Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, the psalmist prays, for you are my God, your Spirit is good, lead me in the land of uprightness. So here's the psalmist's heart cry, asking the Spirit to lead him in uprightness. Or perhaps more familiar to you, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me what? In paths of righteousness for his namesake. So whenever we, we see God leading people and God leading people through the spirit of God, it's again, it's, it's always this idea of leading him in righteousness. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, the promise of the new covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Robert Haldane, who was a, an evangelist in Geneva, he said this, this leading of the Spirit consists, too, in enlightening our understandings so that he who is led by the Spirit is transformed by the renewing of his mind, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the apostle shows that the Spirit leads to when he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So the Spirit of God leads in moral transformation, and he also leads, I would suggest to you, through the Word of God. Two perhaps familiar passages uh, help make this clear. 
In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, if you have, a, if you have nimble fingers, you can turn there. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then notice the results of being filled with the Spirit in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the outflow of that is going to be speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, giving thanks. And then look at the parallel to that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, Colossians is just two books to the right of Ephesians. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Notice it's the same result. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. But the difference is in Ephesians 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the point? The point is, is that being spilled, filled with the Spirit is when the Spirit of God is taking the word of God within the heart and applying it to the life so that the outflow of that is speaking God's word to one another with a thankful heart. What's the point? Is that God the Spirit always works through the medium of the Word of God. Now this is again important because it grounds that experience with the Spirit of God in the truth of God's Word. It's not some kind of mystical thing that's out there, but it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And so, this is, those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. So what this is saying is that it's almost as if the Spirit of God is like the Father's hand that leads his child. The Father's hand that leads his child through his voice, through his word, in paths of righteousness. So that the dominant characteristic, one of the dominant characteristics of the children of God is that they follow the Father's leading through the hand of His Spirit. Well, how does this work? Well, I think A.W. Pink is helpful at this point. He says, God does this by combining together invincible might and gentle inducements. God's work God works upon us morally, not physically, because he will preserve our nature and the principles thereof. He does not force us against our wills, but sweetly draws us. He presents weighty reasons, casting into the mind one after another till the scales be turned, and then all is made efficacious by his Spirit. So the Spirit of God takes us by the hand and leads us to growing in godliness, growing in righteousness. But obviously this is something as well that sometimes Christians can kick against. Often when I'm taking my children through a parking lot or we're crossing the street, I will grab their hand and lead them. And sometimes a child will pull away from that hand. And it, it's a grievous thing because then you have to squeeze tighter. Sometimes you might even have to grab their jacket or something like that. And the grievous reality is, is that child in their ignorance and foolishness is rebelling against love. Love. 
They're rebelling against protection. They're rebelling against safety. In their little foolish minds, they think that freedom is what I need. I need to be able to run through this parking lot. I need to be able to dance in the street. And you know that a car might come and squash their little body. And so you want to lead them properly, lead them in that which is safe. And the same thing goes when when the Spirit of God is taking us by the hand and leading us in righteousness through His Word. Sometimes there's a temptation to kick against it and think, God, you just don't want me to have fun. You just don't want me to be free. But in reality, God is exercising his love towards us. He's saying, my child, stay with me. Follow me. I'm le- that, uh, and that which I'm leading to you is for your good. So friend, are, are you conceding to the Spirit's work in your life? Are you yielding your heart and your life to the work of the Spirit through His Word, or are you chafing against it? Better to concede. And friend, I would just suggest as well, if there's no conceding to the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in your life, then it might be that you're not one of His children. As a father, if I raise my voice to correct some child at Walmart, a child's probably going to look at me and think, who are you? Why? I'm not their parent. I'm not their father. The child listens to the father as he leads through his Word and as he leads by his spirit through his word. And again, for those who are the children of God, yield, yield to the spirits leading through his word. When the Lord brings conviction of sin, don't fight against it. When the Lord brings some specific application of his word to maybe exercise some specific actions of love towards another brother or sister, don't don't put it off. Follow that leading of the Spirit. But the children of God not only concede to the Spirit, children of God are children who comfort themselves in adoption. Notice in verse 5, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. So he starts with the negative in verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. This is what believers have not received. Now, there is much discussion as to whether spirit here, the spirit of slavery, is spirit in the sense of an attitude or it's referring to the spirit of God. I I, I think the basic point here is obviously it's not the spirit of slavery is not the spirit of God. But the idea here is that the Holy Spirit is not the fiery spirit. He's not the one who produces this legal fear in the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit is not one who brings slavery in the same way that a master relates to his slave, but the Spirit of God is the one who brings adoption so that God's children relate to God as Father. This slavery is often the way in which 
the unbelieving person, the person without the Spirit of God, views God. Turn back to chapter 8 and verse 7. It says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The unbeliever's relationship with God is one in which God is a master who barks orders and they don't want to follow. But the relationship of the believer to God by the Spirit, the Spirit who is the Spirit of adoption, is one in which he relates to God now as Father. And he or she as one of his children. We, re- we used to relate to God as a tyrannical master, but now we, re- we relate to him as children. And then notice what he says here, that we have not received the spirit of slavery in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15. Leading to fear again. What, what fear is he talking about? Now, obviously, when we read the scriptures, there is a fear of the Lord that is good and proper. In fact, you read, we've been going through Leviticus. There's a lot of fear of the Lord, right? And bad things happen when you don't fear the Lord as you should. But this is where I think some of the older writers are helpful and that they, they help us to understand that there's two different kinds of fear that the Scripture speaks of. There is what we might call servile fear or slave kind of fear. But then there's familial fear, which is fear like a child has for his father. As an unbeliever, the unbeliever only has servile fear. They only have fear that relates to God as a master or, or, or kind of like appearing before the judge in the courtroom. You, you, you know that fear, right? Uh, uh, you, you know, you don't have a relationship with that judge. It, it's all law. It's all business, right? But the kind of fear that a child has for his father is different. Because there's a relationship. There's still a healthy respect. Well, well, the kind of fear that Paul's talking about here, that, that, that the, the spirit is not a spirit of slavery that leads to fear again. It's that servile fear. And so this is not what the spirit of God produces. And the parallel here in Galatians 5.18 says, But if we are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Because this is the idea, before one is a believer, they relate to God and his law as a kind of ladder to try to climb to him. But after God reconciles, him to, uh, God reconciles us to him, now all of a sudden, we relate to God in a different way as Father. We relate to Him as Father because of adoption. It's a spirit of adoption. And this is where God wants us to enjoy this relationship with him as his adopted children. And, and this is where I think Packer is right. Inasmuch as you understand your relationship to God as father and as being one of his adopted children, you will do so to your own thriving in the Christian life. Our family has taken into our home foster children, and one of the concerns that children's services often has with children is to find permanency for that child as quickly as, as they can. And what they mean by permanency is a permanent home. 
whether that permanent home will be being brought back to the biological family or, or finding some other family member to take that child or whether it's through adoption. But, but they, they understand the importance of permanency in a child's life. If that child keeps bouncing around from home to home and that child doesn't experience the permanency and security of growing up in a home, a stable home where they are the regular recipient of the love of that family, then lots of problems happen. And the same is true in relationship to God. When you understand that permanency, that security that is given in the relationship with the true and living God, But our contemporary adoption is a little bit different than the ancient adoption. William Barclay in his commentary on Romans, which he's often helpful with some of the cultural background stuff, he says this of the ancient adoption. He says, it was carried out by a symbolic sale in which copper and scales were used. Twice the biological father sold his son, and twice he symbolically bought him back. Finally, he sold him a third time, and at the third sale, he did not buy him back. After this, the adopting father had to go to the praetor, one of the principal Roman magistrates, and plead the case for the adoption. And only after all this had been gone through was the adoption complete. But when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. In fact, there's stories in the ancient world of of adoption even taking place with adult children, okay? And I know some of you are tempted by that. You're thinking, there's a couple adult children I'd like to get rid of. (laughs) But what would happen in this adoption process, when that person was adopted into another family, all of a sudden they now received all the rights of sonship in that family. And what that meant was the person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all the rights of his former family. Secondly, in the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all the debts and obligations connected with the previous family were canceled and abolished as if they never existed. As if they never existed. So all of a sudden, all the previous debts are canceled. This person is regarded as a, like a new person, and now they receive all the rights of the new family. And there's even some parallels uh, in our contemporary context. I know with the children that we have adopted after the adoption is finalized with the courts eventually you get in the mail a birth certificate of this child which will have the name of that child and it will have my wife and I listed as the parents the the former birth certificate was done away with the new birth certificate is now the legal status of that child There's a story of a husband who waited 15 years for a child to be born, but him and his wife struggled with infertility. However, they were approached one day with a lead on a newborn child. They stood before the judge on the day of adoption And the judge pointed his finger and asked the father, is anyone coercing you to adopt the little boy? After the father assured him that they were doing it out of love for the child, he made this statement. From today on, he is your son. He may disappoint you. He may even grieve you, but he is your son. Everything you own one day will be his and he will bear your name. 
Then he looked to the clerk and gave this command, so I order a change in this child's birth certificate that it may reflect that these are the parents of this child. And the adoption was finalized. Something of the picture of the spiritual adoption that takes place in God's family. A new status. But also with that new status is a, is a new sense of belonging. A new, if you will, inclination towards God. Because sometimes even with natural adoption, physical adoption, especially depending upon the age of the child, when that child is brought into your home, there can sometimes be a lag in the status they have in your home and the inclination that they have to being one of your children. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of a missionary friend of his who they had adopted an older child into their family. And this child would not call the father daddy. And this went on for some time. And then finally there was one day in which this child was, was asking for help with their shoe and tying their shoe. And they said, Daddy, can you help me with the laces? And Ferguson interjects at this point as he's talking with his friend. He says, you probably would have done anything to help that child with their laces at that point. Overjoyed with the reality that they called you daddy for the first time. The point being is that sometimes there can be a lag in the status and the inclination. But with those who are the children of God, while we may have certain times and seasons in our Christian life where there may feel like there's distance and lack of inclination towards God, the Spirit of God guarantees that there will be that heart inclination whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But that inclination is coming, will come out of a sense of permanency. That we belong to the Father. We are loved by Him. We are part of the family. Friend, do you have that security? Do you have that assurance and that confidence that you are part of the family? God wants you to enjoy that. He doesn't want you to constantly be wondering, looking over your shoulder, wondering, you know, am I just a foster child who's going to be placed in another home and then bounced to another home? He wants you to enjoy that security of being in his adopted family. And that security is based upon your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection. It's not based upon your performance. It's not based upon how well or how good you are as a child. It's based upon his promise. Friend, do you enjoy that? I hope you do. God wants you to enjoy it. In fact, he commands you to enjoy it. In 2 Peter 1, he says, Make your calling and election sure with all diligence. If you're not sure, work hard to get that certainty. So that you know that He is your Father. You know that you are loved by Him. You know that you are safe in, in His hands. And I will suggest to you that your growth and your development in the Christian life will be to the proportion that you understand your permanency in God's family and His love for you. Children thrive when they know that they're loved, when they know that they're cared for. Children don't do well when there's uncertainty, when there's neglect. 
First characteristic of adopted children, they concede to the leading of the Spirit. Secondly, they comfort themselves in their adoption. Third, they call to the Father. Notice what we see here in verse 15. That we have not received this spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but then notice the contrast, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out. This isn't, this isn't the normal word for cry. It's not a whisper. It's a scream. It's a yell. Father! There, there's a sense of urgency and desperation in this word. It, it's, it's the same word that's used in John chapter 7, verse 37, when Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, it says on, the, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus lifts his voice. He cries out, same word, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Jesus wasn't saying, no. He wasn't saying maybe perhaps some of you might, you know, want something to drink. No, he's crying out. And so in a similar way here in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God, he, he, he does this work in the heart where the heart cries out in desperation, Abba, Father. And what this teaches us is that the children of God know who to turn to for help. The children of God know who to cry out to. Zechariah 12, this prophecy says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of of supplication. He is the, the spirit that produces a heart cry of, dis, of dependence and desperation before God. That you realize you need Him. And friend, isn't it no wonder that this is how Jesus teaches His followers to pray? When his disciples ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray, he says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, you pray like a child talking to their father. You pray with utter dependence upon your father. And friend, isn't, isn't that the reality? A child, children are very needy. 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 They need help. Constantly asking for help. Constantly needing attention. And even as a father, you want them to ask you for help. You want them to request things, even if you're going to say no, right? Even if the answer is no, you want them to ask you first because it's a demonstration that they're willing to subject themselves to you. But also notice who it is that we cry out to. In verse 15, we cry out, Abba, Father. He doesn't just say we cry out, Father. But here, the Apostle Paul switches languages. He, the entire letter of Romans is written all in Queen A Greek, 
The, the common Greek language of the ancient world after Alexander Great had Hellenized the culture, spread Greek language and culture all over. The lingua franca of the day was Greek. But Paul switches here and, and he doesn't just use the Greek word. He uses this Aramaic word, which would have been the word that the Jews of that day used. And, and it's not just any word, it's, it's a term of endearment. It, it's not the formal word, yes, Father, but it's more, Daddy? Daddy? In fact, even the way it rolls off the tongue suggests that this is probably one of the first words that a child learns, right? In fact, I, I never forget some years ago talking with a friend of mine uh, from, uh, who, who speaks Arabic and I was explaining the gospel to her and uh, somehow I, I mentioned the father being Abba Father and her, her eyes just lit up like silver dollars and she said abba that's the that's the arabic word for daddy and so evidently i don't know arabic but even today abba is still a a term of endearment of a small child addressing their father abba papa dada It suggests something of, again, that dependence, that relationship, that sweetness. And again, this is highlighting that God's children cry out to him. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who, he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And then he gives this little parable uh, that is a kind of argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, or what man among you, when his son asks for a loaf... Will he give him a stone? So a child says, Daddy, can I have some bread? Hey, why don't you go bite on that brick over there? No, no father says that. Or then he says, or, or what man among you, what, if he asked for a fish, says, Daddy, can I eat some fish? Hey, why don't you go play with those snakes over there and eat one of those? And then Jesus says in verse 11, if you, being evil, all fathers are evil. All of us have the taint of sin. We're selfish. We don't love as we ought to. If even fathers who are tainted by sin know how to give good gifts to your children, here it is, here's the argument, to the greater, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know, even in a fallen world with sinful fathers, when children ask for something, their fathers delight to answer and give them what is good for them. If in this fallen world, even evil fathers know how to do that, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is the perfection of goodness and beneficence, how much more will he lavish good gifts on his children? And so, friend, we ought to be a people that cry out to our Father, knowing with confidence, however he answers, it is for our good. It is for our good. And we ought to cry out with that kind of confidence, knowing he is for us. He is good. 
The argument he'll use later on in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he gave us the best gift he could possibly give us, namely his own son, then is he not going to give you any lesser gift that is needful for you and for your eternal good and benefit? Again, it's an argument from the... That time it's from the greater to the lesser. Friend, do you have hard thoughts of God? Hard thoughts of God? Or view you view him as a kind of hard taskmaster, a kind of disapproving father that you can never seem to gain the approval and love for, and you just keep trying to win his love and favor. Friend, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a loving, generous God. He sent his own son. And he will give most generously. Now, you also need to understand that sometimes, just like any earthly child, what they think is good may not be for their good. And what may you, you may be sold on, this is what I need, this is what's good for me. He's looking in heaven saying, no, my child, that's not good for you. I know something better. So don't think you know what he knows because he knows a lot more. But you do need to trust that what he has for you is good. It is flowing from his heart of kindness and generosity. Jonathan Edwards says if God held sinners in a state of condemnation and as the objects of his hatred and wrath, it would be utterly incongruous that they would have his spirit. It is utterly unbeautiful and inharmonious that a person have anything of those holy, sweet, humble dispositions and motions of the heart which are a participation of the divine nature given him while he is held as an object of God's utter displeasure and loathing. You see what he's saying here? If if he's given you his spirit and there's any kinds of inclination towards the things of God, this is an evidence that indeed you are an object of his eternal love and kindness. You are one of his children. And all of this, my friends, has come at tremendous cost to be one of his children. You know, there's only three times or three sections of Scripture, I should say, in which this word Abba is found. It's found in Galatians chapter 4, I think it is, almost exact parallel to this. Here in Romans 8, and then there's one other time. It's in Mark chapter 14, and it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. In the context of this word, Abba, Father, coming from the lips of Jesus, it's as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And as he's gazing upon the reality of what he's about to undergo upon the cross and drinking the cup of God's wrath and and drinking the whole fury of hell, taking it upon his back upon that cross the next day, as he's contemplating that, he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, Jesus calls God Abba, but then experiences something of 
a severing of that relationship and something of the mystery of the Trinity and all that was going on the cross where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could be able to call God Abba. The one who called God Abba was willing to be cast out so that his younger siblings could be brought in. Adoption comes at a tremendous cost. I'll close with this illustration of William Dixon. He lived in England. He was a widower. He lost his wife some years before. They were never able to have any children. And there was a a fire in their town. And the grandmother of the child, who actually had lost his own parents, was able to get out of that fire. But there was a, that boy, who this orphan child, was on the second floor and they weren't able to get to him. And so this, this man, William Dixon, actually climbed a pole on the side of the house, this pole that had been heated by the fires on the house that had, was burning his hands and skin off of him as he was going up that pole, but he was able to get up that pole, retrieve that child, and get him out of the house. Well, sadly, not long after that, the grandmother had died. And so here this child was again, in a very real sense, orphaned again with nobody to take care of him. And they called a town meeting to ask the question, who would take this child. And one man had presented his case that he, he, him and his wife had not been able to have children for many years. And then William Dixon stood up and he just showed the people in the meeting his hands that had all been scarred. And everybody in that town meeting knew who would be the one who would take care of this child. In a similar way, the Lord Jesus, his hands demonstrate his rightful bringing us into God's family to be his adopted children. Trust in him today. Don't delay. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, trust in Christ alone as the one who paid the price, the adoption price, be brought into God's family. And for those who have trusted in him, keep trusting in him, keep believing in him, and keep enjoying the benefits of being one of his adopted children. Let's pray.